the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In one of the most memorable scenes from the Confessions, St. Augustine recounts the very first time that he became aware of how sin works in the human life. The adolescent Augustine, writing now as a 40-something-year-old man, The adolescent Augustine, along with a few partners in crime, think of like a 5th century neighborhood bicycle gang, venture into a neighboring garden and, in all the glories of juvenile delinquency, steal some fruit from a neighbor's pear tree. But what made such a lasting impression on the young Augustine was not how good the pears tasted, nor how many he was able to stuff inside his shirt. It was that he really had no reason to take them in the first place. He had better and more delicious food at home, and what's more, he fed them to the pigs after just a mere taste of the fruit. The real desire behind his stealing, was not to enjoy that which he stole, but it was the excitement, the feeling of thieving and doing what is wrong when you know it is wrong. No motive for wrongdoing except wrongdoing itself. It was foul, Augustine tells us, and I loved it. Many Christians in recent years have, in response to Augustine's understanding of sin, simply shrugged their shoulders, perhaps considering it problematic because it has led to an intense scrupulosity and, for many, overwhelming feelings of constant guilt. After all, in the big picture of Augustine's life, if you've read the Confessions, you will know this, taking a few pieces of fruit from a tree pales in comparison to his many other misadventures. Stay tuned for my sermon next week to hear more on that. (laughs) But I think that Augustine places his finger on something that deep down we all know to be true about the reality of human existence. Consider St. Paul's words from the seventh chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
Most of the time, um, there are some passages of Scripture that benefit from contextualization, from grounding you in the circumstances of Scripture itself. But this is not one of those passages. Most of the time when people read this, the best and only response is to simply nod your head. Yes, I know this to be true. That is, there is a deep and a breathtaking mismatch between our willing and our doing, between what we know to be good and what we choose to be good. For example, I promise myself that I will not eat the entire tube of Pringles, but here I sit, covered in all of the crumbs. But the examples, of course, are more than just trivial things. They run to the very deep, deepest parts of our human lives. I do not do what I want, but that which I do not want, I do. This is a basic and inescapable diagnosis of our human wills. Yet... Even though we all viscerally know Paul is right, we try to convince ourselves of its untruth. We try to convince ourselves that we are free always to do good things. We are, after all, in America. We are a people who prize self-determination, self-mastery above all else. We are a people who see ourselves as free and rational moral actors. We are a people who live in a time when the advances of science promise us not only more and better information, but longer and more comfortable lives. From a young age, many of us are trained to think that if we are just given enough information, if we are told what is right, well, then maybe we can do what is right. But Paul tells us that this way of thinking rests on a basic miscalculation about how human beings work. Paul is a faithful and observant Jew. Paul knew from the very beginnings of his life the law of God and God's commandments. But, Paul says, the knowledge of God's commandments for what is good did not always lead him to following them. In fact, sometimes the knowledge of them makes him want to violate them even more. Do not put your hand in the cookie jar. And when you hear it, What's the first thing you want to do? Put your hand in the cookie jar. The problem, in other words, is not our exterior circumstances. The problem is intrinsic to who we are, that our hearts are profoundly unfree under sin, that the law is not written on our hearts. And as the Collect for Ash Wednesday says so profoundly, We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. The basic problem is that in each and every one of us, there are two worlds, two people dwelling within us under the reign of sin. We are divided against ourselves and constantly at war with ourselves. You know what I'm talking about. Anyone who's ever lived in a house with a two-year-old knows this to be true. I don't have to convince you. 
As the parent of a young child myself, the Romans 7 world is the world in which I live every single waking hour. Just who is it that will wake up from that nap? Who's to say? Will it be Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? I never know. The philosopher Hannah Arendt once very aptly pointed out that the subconscious, those patterns of thoughts that we're not always aware of that influence our actions, the subconscious was not the discovery of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, but the subconscious was the discovery of St. Paul. I understand not my own actions. I am an enigma to myself. Paul knows that this is the case because in each of us there is a basic duality constantly at war. Dostoevsky, you probably have heard this before, God and the devil are at war and the battleground is your heart. Wretched person that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Anyone who has walked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has asked themselves that question, albeit probably in a little bit of a different way. Anyone familiar with the 12 steps will know what I mean when I say the big book. The big book is a collection of stories that was first published in 1939, which documents the recovery of hundreds of, uh, of alcoholics. And at the very beginning of that book, there is a long letter that was written by a group of medical experts in addiction treatment that functions as something like a doctor's endorsement of the process of the 12 steps. The doctors note in their letter that they've treated many alcoholics, and they've noticed that after a time, alcoholics lose the ability to differentiate between the true from the false in themselves. That the alcoholic seems, that alcoholic life seems to them like the only normal life to live. They write, they are restless. They are restless irritable and discontented unless they can experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes with a drink. This is repeated over and over, and unless they can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for recovery. Grown men and grown women have cried out to us in sincere and despairing appeal, Dr. I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I simply cannot stop. You must help me. Who will save us from this body of death? Where can we find rest? Name under heaven which can save us from this body of death. The only name under heaven that can offer us true rest is the name of the one who in our gospel lesson today says that he has been handed all things from his Father. 
The one who, in our gospel reading, thanks the Father for this mystery of eternal love and self-giving that has been hidden from the intelligent and the wise, taken away from the self-reliant, the proud, the haughty, and has revealed it to mere infants. To be an infant is, by definition, to be in a condition of pure weakness, of utter dependence on your parents, and most especially your mother. The infant is literally the one who is unable to speak, who lives in complete weakness and in complete silence, but who gradually learns from his or her mother how to speak. Christian life means growing gradually into the status of an infant. Growing gradually into a status of weakness, of dependence on the word of the Father by the expressive power of the Holy Spirit. Where can we find rest? We can find rest in the one who has yoked himself to us and who is himself yoked to his Father. Where can we find rest? We can find rest in the one who promises to relieve us of the heavy burdens of this life. And what is the burden of this life? The burden of this life is the old lie that if we draw enough power from ourselves, we will be happy and self-satisfied. Where can we find rest? We can find rest in the one who has set us free from the law of sin and death. We can find rest in the one who has written the law on our hearts. We can find rest in the one who says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will refresh you. Thanks be to God that he has revealed these things to the meek and the humble of heart. Thanks be to God that in this one whom we can find rest, we have undergone an entire psychic change. Thanks be to God. Where can we find rest? We can find rest in Jesus. Thanks be to God that in his name there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in him. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you. Oh,